0: I think that the role of guns in America has bizarrely achieved nearly infinite importance as we slide towards what's commonly called a narco-tyranny following Sam Francis, but is really just a form of factionalism where the left attempts to use its favored clan groups to extract value from other groups and to dominate them. That is, if the average normal person in America is in desperate need of guns simply to protect himself from the predations of the government, which we'll get to in a second, but more importantly, the predations of people who are enabled by the government in order to harm them. You saw this, obviously, in the Floyd riots. I always make the point, though, that the Floyd riots aren't a great example because the Floyd riots only took place and people were only attacked, with rare exceptions, areas where people didn't have guns or if they did have guns, the prosecutors would go after them. In my area, for example, there were no Floyd riots because people would just get mowed down in the streets and the prosecutor would laugh. So, so nobody bothered. But the reason guns are important is because that, that cannot be counted on in the next iteration of the Floyd riots, which is inevitable. And every, and I've said this before, but I went to law school in Chicago. So I have all these lawyer friends. I worked in Chicago for several years as a lawyer. I have all these shitless lawyer friends who live in the suburbs of Chicago and don't like guns. And to a, to a man and a woman, they've all gone out and bought a gun since the Floyd riots. It's totally bizarre to me to see these, like, middle-aged Jewish lawyers who are my close friends who, like, for years I've told them, hey, man, you should get a gun. And they, like, roll their eyes, and here they are getting a gun and a concealed carry permit. So I think that guns are crucially important for the immediate future in America. And I suspect you agree with me, but I'd be interested in what you think. And, of course, they're crucially important for the same reason that the Second Amendment was put into place, which is to ultimately, if necessary, to enable us to resist the government. Which under the right leadership would be trivially easy given the relative weakness of the government and the huge amounts of guns in, in private ownership. You always hear the statistic three hundred million guns in private ownership, but I've been hearing that same number it's probably seen the analyses I've seen pretty closer to a billion. And that's not including the ones that I can make in my illegally in my garage. So guns are important for us to us. Before society is remade, society will go much further down. And if you don't want yourself or your loved ones to get harmed or exploited or killed, guns are the way to prevent that. There is no other, except no substitutes.
1: Welcome to the John Rush Podcast. This is an interview with Charles Haywood, a retired entrepreneur who now runs a website called theworthyhouse.com and a podcast under the same name, which you can find on Spotify, YouTube, and elsewhere. Charles primarily writes essays based on his thoughts on various books he's read on politics, history, and religion. Unlike many political commentators, Charles spends very little time chiming in with hot takes on current events, and much more time trying to identify the fundamental failures of modern society, of which there are many and what should be done to correct them so that the future is a place we can look forward to. If you're concerned with the direction Western society is headed and the United States in particular, you'll enjoy this interview. How would you summarize what are the main problems with Western society now? If you had to go back to first principles, what are the central tenets that you think are at the core of the rot that we see?
0: At the core of the rot, as I'm fond of saying is the enlightenment or rather the political claims and demands of the enlightenment uh, revolving around emancipation and egalitarianism in the service of some imagined perfection or utopia uh, down the road. You could cast that another way, though. You could cast that as the fundamental modern problem is the total denial of reality Mm. across a wide range of areas of human life. Uh, The manifestation that's most destructive and politically controlling is the Enlightenment one. But even aside from the political angle where the left dominates everything, in my opinion, the problem is that the vast majority of people have lost touch with reality, whether that's at a kind of a simple level, like simply have lost touch with the natural world, or more often they verge into things that are simply denials of reality in various ways. There's infinite manifestations of that. Some of them are related to technology. I'm a techno-optimist, but technology has many problems. Others are political. And those, ultimately, though, the ones that are not tied to nature, tend to tie back, ultimately, to enlightenment values of emancipation. That is, I can free myself from reality and be whatever I want to be. I can have autonomic individualism of infinite scope. And that will never cause me any problems or society any problems. And
1: we see all around us the opposite is true. Some examples of that in a concrete sense. When somebody hears that it's a denial of reality, they'll think, well, I look around and everything seems to be functioning relatively well. If there was this mass Jim Jones-style denial of reality, wouldn't that be causing a lot of problems for society?
0: I think that, uh, I'm not sure Jim Jones did deny reality. I think Jim (laughs) Jim Jones got reality good and hard along with all of his followership. Perhaps that's not necessarily the greatest counterexample. But I think the one manifestation, and probably the one that is, I don't know if it's the most destructive, extremely destructive, is the denial of differences between the sexes, between men and women. We can reject out of hand the related denial that there are such things as two sexes, which are immutable and not interchangeable. But it is true that another denial of reality is is that denial. But leaving that kind of insanity out of the frame The denial of the core, immutable, and extremely important for society differences between men and women is the kind of denial of reality that leads to a variety of concrete bad things. And while it's true that things aren't falling apart around us, because we can get cheap Chinese stuff off Amazon anytime we want, so in that sense, if consumption is the measure of your society's success, we're doing pretty well. But First of all, that's going to come to an end probably sooner rather than later. Even aside from that, it's not the measure of success. The measure of a society's success you can look at in different ways, but certainly one is reproducing itself. And when you're a society that's ruined the the relations between men and women such that essentially the entire world is about to have a demographic crash, that's kind of the very definition of doing a poor job of running your society. And that stems from the denial of the reality of men and women being
1: right and of course i'm sure many people would deny that as a problem as well right especially when you start looping in environmentalism and the the movement behind that when if you see humans as this pest essentially that is spoiling the planet then that makes sense you would want that but before we get into that i do i do want to touch on that later one question i always have when you see something like this where it seems to be a problem that is fairly obvious and widespread what attracted people to that? So this is something I ask Catholics as well, right, about the Reformation. I have a lot of Catholic friends. They like to talk about Martin Luther and how terrible everything went during the Protestant Reformation. And my question, I don't necessarily disagree, but I don't know enough to comment in detail, but my question is always, well, why were people so eager to adopt that new system? There must have been problems that drove them to do that.
0: You can go very far down the rabbit hole if you want to talk about the Reformation and Western European Religious reform. So I'll stick it there a little bit closer. Why did people embrace Enlightenment values starting in the late 18th century and continue embracing those till we get what we do today? And again, by Enlightenment values, I mean fundamentally emancipation and egalitarianism. I mean, the reason is that people, all these things feel good. Autonomic individualism. Look, I like having autonomic autonomic individualism not being bound in any way by things that I am not continuously choosing as much as the next guy because all these things feel good. And a classic example of this ultimately is the serpent in the garden. The serpent promises Adam and Eve that they can have all these good things if they make choices that are not constrained by God. And throughout mankind's history, there's an eternal struggle between, well, it's really a three-way struggle, between strictures that are too strict, strictures that are too little, and people's and societies' choices somewhere along that spectrum. There really is no kind of magic place where the society can pick, this is the degree of individual freedom and autonomic individualism we want we're going to pick this, we're going to sit on autopilot and everything is going to be good for the next 3,000 years. I mean, it doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. We just have gone so far to one side that it inevitably ends in disaster because the society simply can't, a society that is composed of atomized individuals simply can't stick together for any length of time, can't accomplish things together for
1: any. Of time. So it's hard to pin down exactly what that golden mean you know, in Aristotelian terms would be, right? Between too much order and not enough, or too much liberty and not enough liberty, and that's just something you have to figure out through trial and error.
0: Well, I think it's also definitely that, but you also have to understand that it's not static because it depends upon many external varieties. So, for example, if you have a bunch of white Puritans in 1600s New England, you can get by with a different amount of individual autonomy than if you have a more diverse—you know, word that has been ruined in the modern context—but if you have a more diverse society say, an empire of some kind, where you have a number of different peoples of radically different cultures, then perhaps entire society needs more, less strictures. But within each of those subcultures, there's an enhanced level of strictures. For example, one of the classic examples in the modern world is Jewish diamond merchants in Antwerp, who famously conduct deals worth tens of millions of dollars verbally on a handshake because the society's rules in terms of how one behaves towards one's fellow compatriots in that subculture are so strict that no one would ever think of breaking the deal because it would be the end of their social existence. And you, you, can, you can do that within certain types of societies, but only on a very small scale. So I guess the more diverse and larger society is you have to modify the, what the rules may have been at the beginning. i mean again, another historical example you could take is the early Roman Republic versus the later Roman Empire. I mean, just radically different societies requiring radically different rules in order to be successful.
1: And when figuring these things out, so if you talk about liberty and egalitarianism in modern society, these are generally seen as somewhat sacrosanct. So if there's any restriction on those whatsoever, then there's usually a pretty negative backlash. And one of the things I've seen you say in interviews that is quite interesting is this Difference between ordered liberty and you could say unfettered or limitless liberty. Can you talk about? I you just talked about how a society figures that out over time and how it will differ for each society. But what does that process look like? How do these Jews in Antwerp arrive at a system like that? And how do you course correct when we're in our current situation?
0: Yeah, as yeah, I mean, this is I'm not really a philosophy guy, and that was one of the things we had mentioned in some of our correspondence. My general understanding of, with respect to a lot of classical Greek philosophy is that ordered liberty is the freedom to choose rightly. And the liberty to do whatever you want basically makes you a slave of the passions. So it's, not a, it's a form of liberty that is not really liberty at all. So what you have to have is a society that where people choose to live rightly according to typically some moral code that that society adopts, which ultimately needs to be based in reality to have any sense. I mean, our society, our current broader society has a moral code. It's just like the worst moral code ever. <laughs> you say it revolves around doing whatever you want all day long. You're, you're, who cares about the consequences? So I think I'm sh- shading a little bit away from your question, but fundamentally, liberty in a society doesn't mean that everyone engages in libertinism. But it means that people have the freedom to choose rightly and are encouraged by that society to choose rightly, but aren't necessarily forced to choose rightly. I mean, to some extent, they are forced. Also, I mean, I, I'm always ranting about how we need to bring back stigma. And it is true that there should be social sanctions for people who don't choose right. You can't run a society without them. But you, liberty, you know, free men should be allowed to choose within the ambit of society's restrictions like that the way— that that they choose to live.
1: It seems one question I often ask myself about say drug use, which is something I don't take in, I don't I'm not particularly enthusiastic about, but it also seems like in the United States we have very strict pol- legal policies around this. And this is something Solzhenitsyn warned about in his Harvard address that in America we're extremely legalistic about many of these things that would normally be enforced through as you said stigma. It seems like as you degrade stigma and these traditional ways of organizing society, you almost have to start introducing greater legal controls on some of these things. Otherwise, things would literally just go you know, to hell. Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely. I mean, yeah. it's, it's cousin to the point that people have made, Robert Nisbet made it in the quest for community in the 1940s even, that as intermediary institutions disappear that give people meaning but also impose strictures on them, people will over time increasingly turn to the state to provide meaning as well as sustenance and so on. And the same thing is true here, that if people won't self-control, ultimately you have to go to the state to issue legal sanctions. Drugs are a good example because as we see, it's a poor substitute for people self-controlling their desires and not engaging in various forms of drug abuse. I mean, that's true for what are typically considered mild drugs such as marijuana, and it's obviously true for harder drugs. What we have, of course, is a total disaster because and that also ties back to autonomic individualism which is that people don't feel, people feel that they can make any choice that they want and uh, yes it's true that people stigma isn't enough because there's always going to be subcultures that will engage in drug abuse because that's just the way the way it works but the you need to you need to have something that's not government advertising campaigns that encourages people not to take drugs you also uh, the other side you have to have a positive vision that is you have to provide people meaning. I mean, there's a reason why the areas of America that are most hit by the opioid epidemic are those areas, because they're areas where young people in particular, but everybody, can't get jobs, don't have any meaning, all the families are broken, et cetera, et cetera. And while I'm all for, you know, Trump is right, seems to be riding the let's kill the Mexican drug dealers train. I mean, I'm all for killing people. But that that <laughs> itself is inadequate. Yeah. People have to have a reason not to take drugs, both positive and negative positive, meaning the good things in my life are sufficient and I don't need to escape my reality by taking opioids and negative. If I do take opioids, grandma's going to beat me with a stick and that's going to be embarrassing at Thanksgiving. So (laughs) you need both of those things in order to correct for drugs. Government rules and government advertising campaigns are are always going to be inadequate.
1: Right. One difference between, so another philosopher that you've written about or philosopher and politician, this Polish man named Zard Legutko. He's a member of the EU parliament. And I remember you said that his book, I think it was The Demon in Democracy, was an excellent summation of many of the problems that you see in Western liberal democracy. And one thing that seems like a lot of overlap, I haven't read his book, so that's on my reading list, but maybe he goes- short. it's,
0: it's like 150 pages, so it's easy. Okay,
1: yeah, that, that'll be prioritized. I'm going through uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, so I'm on a short book kick right now. And it's all short but deep. Yes, yeah. But one thing that I found interesting about his line of thought is this, overlap between communist ideology and Western liberal ideology. And you know, as you've written about in your book, review of his book, that many of the communists were not punished after the fall of communism. They were not lustrated to the same degree in many of these countries they were in, say, Eastern European countries, or even in that case, right? There's still a communist party in the Czech Republic as well. To what do, It seems to me that a common goal they both have is this idea that there is a utopia, an end of history, this Fukuyamian, if that's how you say it, idea of how we get there. And is, is that one of the problems here, is that we believe that there is this, as you are saying, this kind of, if we tinker enough with society and we get it into this autopilot zone, it can just keep sustaining itself if we just follow these rules that these people create?
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, that, that, the Enlightenment project is a merely one example of utopian ideologies. Utopian ideologies have a lot of attractions to, to people throughout history, but certainly the most successful and the one that, that guides us now. People frequently focus, I think, on sub-branches of it, like communism. Communism famously or infamously promised that every man would work 20 minutes a day and then the rest of the time would be somewhat better than Aristotle. Mm-hmm. And it, it, that if you set up society this way, not only will you have societal flourishing, but every person will succeed to a degree that used to be inconceivable and the state will wither away and all these kind of insane things that are obviously false in retrospect. But the pull of, of any ideology in most ideologies, and you can imagine an ideology that is a belief system that's internally consistent and resistant to new facts that contradict it, you can imagine an ideology that's not utopian. But in practice, at least in the modern world, almost all, if not all, ideologies are utopian because that's what people want to believe. Mm. They want to believe that perfection can be achieved. It must be something inherent in mankind, in human nature, that we want to believe that perfection can be achieved. Actually, this is actually an interesting cross-cultural question. May, part of this may come from Christianity in the West, that is this linear view of time leading to perfection. It's not at all clear to me, for example, that Asian cultures share this tendency towards utopian mm. ideologies, except to the extent they've adopted like Pol Pot, Western imports. It, it, I mean, it, this is grossly simplistic, and I'm don't know anything about Asian cultures, but you get the impression there's much more of a cyclical view of history. Mm-hmm. So maybe this, maybe it's not, it nothing to do with human nature. Maybe it has to do with Western culture being formed by Christendom with its linear view of history leading to the eschaton, and we just you know drop the religious part of it and substitute some secular secular thing instead. Regardless, I mean, I think that's... that's the problem with perfectionist ideologies is that the perfection is to be achieved in this world as opposed to in the next world religious ideologies suffer from this sometimes too but secular ideologies always do is that no sacrifice particularly of other people is too great to be made in order to achieve that perfection because if you're standing in the way of this perfection then obviously it's not just the people today you're preventing from being happy but all the generations yet unborn and so then you end up in pulpot land or the place where no doubt the current American left would like to
1: see a bunch of us. That's one of the most horrifying things about communism that does seem very different than most of the other extremely violent, bloody ideologies that have taken over is that when they got in charge, it was directed against everybody, like every member of society, high and low. Whereas if you look at, say, I know you're familiar with medieval history and some Roman history as well, is if you look at, say, the year of the the six emperors, I think it was in Rome, a lot of politicians died and probably a lot of soldiers died in these fighting. But for the average person, it wasn't so bad generally. I think you wrote about this in the War of the Roses, too, where usually the upper class, the people who were making most of the decisions, they often took a beating from each other. And then <laughs> the people below, of course, they did suffer. I'm not saying there was no collateral damage in these fights, and often they needed them to be the foot soldiers. But it wasn't like communism, where it was just every member of society was targeted by the government.
0: Yeah. And the average person in any of those societies, you're right, would just you know, sit around and you know, look up from his Soup. Oh, new emperor. <laughs> um, you know, and the War of the Roses is interesting, too. Like this, I think it's the Battle of Chester, which was one of the culminating battles of the War of the Roses. I believe, uh, this is disputed, I think, but I believe the estimate is that 2% of the entire male population of England died on the battlefield. Most of that being the upper classes, but plenty of foot soldiers as well. So, I mean, what? Extreme things like that can reach pretty far down the society, but short of that kind of stuff, right. who cares, right? I mean, Emperor X got stabbed in the back by the Praetorian Guard. You know, whatever, yeah. maybe, they'll hand, maybe the new emperor will hand down, hand down bread and circuses to celebrate his accession. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and more generally, and I'm sure you've heard me make this point, but yeah, I think that's the way it should be. Most yeah. people shouldn't have involved in these things because it really should be above the average person's pay grade to worry about. Those kind of
1: things. Right. And this will get in. I do want to talk about weapons ownership and how that affects society and will affect the future of society. But this is something that I've always found interesting is that if you look at the incentives of a tyrant, and I mean that way, not in the, the modern, oh, he's just a bad person who's authoritarian, but more in the Greek sense of like somebody who takes control, man of destiny, an Augustine type figure, Julius Caesar type figure and imposes his will after some kind of coup or revolution. How is it in his best interest to start disarming people? Machiavelli talked about this as well, I think in Discourses, about if you start disarming people, basically you just make a bunch of very upset people who are going to find guns or weapons of some kind no matter what. Ideally, you'd want to keep those people really happy, really well-armed, and really loyal to you.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. And one One of my Caesar pieces, I wrote about that. I mean, my expectation is that a Caesar would want to disarm large segments of the American population. I'm all for both philosophically and practically mass weapons ownership. But that's a historical anomaly. On the other hand, it's also true that it's a historical anomaly that in the lands that are currently America is extremely deeply embedded, particularly among the kind of people who would likely come to the fore in any kind of Caesar accession. And while obviously there's it's not by any means perfect, it's easier and easier to make fire Yes. simply by yourself. I mean, I own, for example, a metal mill and an engine lathe, and I can, I mean, I don't do it because I'm a legal stickler, but I could churn out silencers and our 15 lowers by the dozen, no problem. <laughs> but uh, but uh, I don't know what that would look like trying to disarm the American population in the same way that we don't know what it looked like you know, the President Biden was trying to grab all the guns.
1: Hard to say. From the stats I've seen, I think it was uh, either only a third of the people in Australia when they did their big gun buyback program or a third gave their guns back. It was either one of those things, one third or two thirds, which is a lot of guns. I mean, it's probably mostly people outside the cities, but I would assume my prediction would be in the United States, if they tried to do some gun confiscation, gun buyback, whatever they want to call it, it would be a lot of people in the cities. There are people who would give up their guns. People who don't really care about them, first of all. Those are the areas that People like you and I don't live in and are probably going to have their own problems. Yeah. Giving up those guns is probably going to be a mistake. And then the people who live outside the city is, I mean, good luck with that. Good luck going into Appalachia. Good luck going to Wichita Falls, Texas. Yeah,
0: Well, Australia is a good example, right? Because people didn't really turn their guns. And I'm married to an Australian and the Australians, Americans don't understand Australians at all. The Australians are, and you saw this in the COVIDs and the Wuhan plague, are the, just the grossest sheeple on the planet this idea of like, the rugged Australian individualist is long dead and Crocodile Dundee is a movie character. So, I mean, philosophically, if the government attempted to ban guns, that would be perfectly, on a philosophical level, entire justification for a total overthrow of the government by violent force. But you know, whether we would see that, I can't say.
1: I want to switch gears quickly, related topic, but the founding fathers, that's something I would say a lot of people would point to when you start going after liberal Enlightenment values, they would say, well, what about Thomas Jefferson? What about John Adams? What about George Washington? Mm -hmm. These were people who used these principles to inform much of their writing about the revolution and the United States. So what would be the counter argument to that about the founding fathers of the United States and their adherence to these liberal values?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, but I think it has a relatively simple answer, which is the 1770s were very early in the accession to power of Enlightenment thinking. And in America, you know, put into place in a society that had a tremendous amount of seed coin in the sense of a society of people who were constrained in various ways, who chose ordered liberty, with a lot of diversity even among those people in different places in the 13 colonies, but in general, a very fruitful area for any kind of political endeavor, simply because the people were virtuous in the, in the old kind of political sense. Obviously, the counter example is the French Revolution, where you tried the same things and you got a much different set of results. But I don't think it's a knock on the founding fathers that they thought those ideas were appealing and could be implemented in a new political system because they didn't have the historical perspective that we do, that you, you start down that road and pretty soon you're, the trainees are mutilating your children. If you like took those people here, the founding fathers, and brought them here, they, their heads would explode because yeah. they, they would... They didn't have the benefit of seeing that. Very similarly, you can give some credence to say the Bolsheviks or, or any early 20th century group of communists for saying communism is the future, capitalism is ending, and we can achieve utopia through these set of principles because, in a sense, they didn't know anything. Hmm. I mean, they could convince themselves that X, Y, and Z is true, and if X, Y, and Z is true, then A, B, and C will follow. So we need to do this. Now, after the 20th century, you can't, that's obviously just silly. But back then, it wasn't as obviously silly. So I guess my point is that the founding fathers didn't set us down a path that has led to us where we are, but there's no way for them to see that. And in many ways, the things that they said made a lot of sense, objectively, like within the frame that they accept. That is, if you posit that monarchy is bad and corrupt and tends to tyranny, and that individuals are virtuous and will, in a free community, will act in a virtuous fashion then granting people maximum liberty to do whatever they want makes a lot of sense. And it worked quite well in America for quite a long time. It's just that you can't go back. That's It wouldn't work again, and it's led us to where
1: we are now. What is it? The, the Straussian view, right? This idea that things were set up you know, in as good of a way as you could possibly get, at least in modern history that we're aware of during the time of the founders, you know, 1787, 1776, whatever you want to say. You know, one thing, this is an interesting point that I've been thinking about. I was listening to a podcast by Daryl Cooper, who I think you're somewhat familiar with, right? I, I know. know yeah. So I was listening to his series on Who's America about the West Virginia coal mines in 1912 to 1920. Great series, yeah. Yeah, so very seen. interesting, right? And the thing that I was thinking after that was, it's very easy to go back to a point in history, like whether it's 9-11, whether it's 2014 in Ukraine, whether it is you know, 1989, the fall of communism and say, OK, this is where things changed. This was the inflection point for the trajectory of history. And the farther back you go in U.S. history, obviously, I think the U.S. has done many, many things correctly, including the Second Amendment. But when you start looking at how the government treated the coal miners, I mean, it was in some ways arguably worse than slavery in certain ways. And then, sure. I mean going through machine gunning tents and this was enabled by the federal government in many ways, or at least the local government. So it does and then you look at something like the Whiskey Rebellion as well. So I guess my what I'm trying to say here is was there any hope for the United States to have some kind of system that didn't devolve into what we have now?
0: Probably not to the extent it got bigger and more diverse. That is, I don't think we all need to have some kind of ethnostate, but the fact is the bigger a country gets, the harder it is to maintain this level of virtue and the harder it is to avoid the kind of corruption of the centralized government that's inevitable. I think this point about point X in history was the ideal point. It is silly in a sense because that kind of goes back to our earlier discussion. It may have been perfect at that point in history for that set of people Mm. existing in that moment. But if you take those principles and you import them into what society is now, which, you know, it's like the old thing about you can't step into the same river twice, because it's changed around. you, Take the same principles, they're simply not going to work in the same way, with the same effect in a totally different society, even 50 years later, much less 250 years later. And so I think that was there ever any chance for the United States? Well, yeah. I mean, it had its run in the sense that there was a chance. It did well. It had its problems, like every society. Some of those problems were probably solved correctly. Others not. Who's to say but, you know, it's over now. Yeah. And I think it's called It's Over Now. But anyway, and that's just that's OK. You know, I, I, I accept that. Just, everyone else doesn't accept that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, that's a good segue then to talk about foundationalism, which is obviously what you're referring to. So how would you first of all, how did that concept start to crystallize? And then what are the, the central ideas of this philosophy or system of government?
0: It's funny you should ask that about how did that start to crystallize? Because so I started writing book reviews, which, of course, are really not book reviews, but are you know, me ranting all oh, my my thoughts, not my rants, my, my detailed thoughts masquerading as book reviews. But I actually started doing book reviews back in 2015, just as I've often said, to fix the books in my mind. And so if you trace a thing back to like 2017, 2018, I read a couple books on first one, I think, was Mark Lilla. Mark Lilla is this kind of classical liberal guy who teaches, I think, at City University of New York or something, who wrote a book, The Reckless Mind, which profiles several binary thinkers. And, and I started writing on what I call, at this point, Reaction, with a capital R, kind of exploring some of these lines of thought, which really weren't familiar to me except kind of vaguely. And over time, that it, just writing it developed into it, my goal is to provide what I think is a positive, applied political philosophy. By positive, I mean... Not just complaining all the damn time about how, and in particular, not complaining all the damn time and saying, if we went back to X date, that's what we need to do. Like a nostalgia, I'm violently anti-nostalgia. I think looking backward can inform you, but that's all. Moving backward is, I mean, no historical example exists of people who have successfully moved backward, except in Small, micro communities that immediately go extinct. I mean, that's just a stupid way to be. So over time, this developed into this into an overall and is now twelve point applied political philosophy, which I call foundationalism, which is actually not a not a name I came up with. It, it, one of my readers came up with it when I requested names, and so I'm not, I'll go with that
1: statue in the uh, future.
0: Well, it echoes a little bit to Asimov's Foundation trilogy, mm. which and you know, my my number one pillar is is space. So I have this techno optimism angle, which uh, which you know, people are I think somewhat less interested in sometimes than some of the the political philosophy. And obviously, the foundations of reality are an important part of foundationalism. So you have kind of a, a dual thing there. With- so I have twelve points.
1: Go ahead. Oh yeah, I was just going to say. So with that first point of space is, I mean, I think in some ways it is almost more metaphorical. I, I, I don't think you're opposed to space travel, but my, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that is almost more of a representation that you do need some kind of external goal to strive for as a society, whether it's, you know, taking over Spain, if yeah. you're the ones, you know, or whatever. I would whatever.
0: say metaphorical, because, you know, external goals in a fully explored globe are, don't have, there's not a lot of possible external goals other than space or, you know, digging into the ocean to find the alien civilizations there. I have a couple of pieces in process. I have a follow up piece on space responding to various criticisms and so on that have arisen partially to me, but also to other people like Malcolm Shiuni, who's this Swedish refugee Marxist guy that I'm, I'm friendly with on, on Twitter. He's kind of g- generically in the dissident rights sphere or overlaps with it. He's always ridiculing people who think we should go to space because he's like, dude, you know. Antarctica is available now and no one's going there to like to, to like seize the day in Antarctica and it has oxygen
1: <laughs> I mean which is a fair yeah I was gonna say I mean that doesn't seem too wrong to me you know if we were going to to build some civilization like that I I remember I used to be interested in vaguely like I read a few articles about it about seasteading that seemed like an interesting idea things like that something that
0: you're... also a good example right because that's gone nowhere
1: yes that's <laughs> so true
0: I mean, yeah, sea steading isn't that hard. I mean, yeah, I think there there was a guy. They had some abandoned oil rigs and so on. Yeah, the go- governments are generically hostile to it, but not hostile enough to make it impossible. I mean, they're only truly hostile if you use your sea to, to, like, you know, drugs and weapons. <laughs> yeah. yeah. act yeah, as a plot. labs. Right. Uh, so I think maybe that would imply that I am a bit more receptive to the idea, if it is a metaphor, than I might have been might have been a couple of years ago. Because, like I'm saying. Societies don't say static, certainly my views have changed at least subtly over time. So regardless of whether it's metaphorical or to what degree it's metaphorical, certainly a society needs a binding external goal of some kind in order to be truly successful. That is, most societies in human history aren't truly successful in any meaningful sense of the term. The classic example of this, of course, is various Chinese civilizations, which go round and round and round area there's more or less China, and nothing ever happens, mm. basically. I mean, yeah, you have some wars, and then you have some people killed, and you know then you have a new person. But the only society that's ever been truly successful in the past 2,000 years is Western society. There was a book I read, The Gunpowder Age by, uh, what was the guy's name? Andre, an Italian guy. And it tells the story about, it's meant to say how the Chinese invented gunpowder and did all sorts of stuff with it. But the story actually tells is that the Chinese invented gunpowder, and they didn't just use it for fireworks. They used it for very crude hand cannons Mm -hmm. and some other stuff like that. And then the Westerners came along, and in 20 years, they were building, like, 30-foot-long forged steel cannons. (laughs) I mean, the real story is that the Westerners are the only people who are truly successful, if you define being able to kill people more effectively, as being truly successful. So a society that has a binding external goal and the psychological makeup to organize around that goal is likely to be truly successful. And since my premise, which I think people could argue with, is that what you want is a society like that, mm-hmm. which has cost well as benefits, rather than a static cyclical society. In order to achieve that, you have to have some kind of binding goal where everyone just sits around and tries to divide the pie endlessly in fresh new ways that give themselves a bigger piece. And that's just not going to lead to any kind of progress.
1: Sounds like democracy. Yeah. Exactly. So Here we are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So one of the things you talk about a lot is this idea of a natural aristocracy. I think maybe you got it from Egasset or somewhere else. You know, I know Jefferson and Adams wrote about this. Yeah. So Aristotle in Nicomachean Ethics, he has this definition of virtue that is interesting. And I want to get your thoughts on it, put it that way. So I'll just read the quote. So virtue then is a state of character concerned with choice, lying in a mean, i.e., the mean relative to us, this being determined by reason and by that reason by which the man of practical wisdom would determine it. So he elaborates a little bit, and basically his the way I read it is that the way you arrive at the definition of virtue, if you're trying to figure out what virtue is, is to look at reasonable wise men, how do they act, what do they tell you you should do, and then do that. What are your thoughts on that? Because on the one hand, I get it, and especially in a society in which Aristotle lived, and on the other hand, I could see that going very wrong nowadays.
0: Well, nowadays, you definitely go very wrong, because the assumption there, as you say, is you a mean to use Aristotle's word, by which you can act as reference. And now our mean is, you know, Kamala Harris and that tranny that they keep parading around Mulvaney. You know, those are the mean means for our society. And so, which means, of course, you have to go back to a different point of reference. But in a sense, I think, I mean, I don't mean to imply that I'm fit to judge Aristotle, but in a sense, what Aristotle says is obvious. That is, the only way you can have virtue is by making choices that are better than the mean. And to do that, you have to fix the mean first and you have to have some sense of what better means. And that requires an embedding within a society rather than simply choosing, doing what feels good in the moment. And so here we are kind of back to the question of order. It's just a question of how one determines what ordered liberty is, what the right choices are. And every society has a somewhat different answer to that. If you're C.S. Lewis, you argued, back to mere Christianity, if you're C.S. Lewis, you argue that it's written on every human heart what the good choices are. I'm not so sure about that. I think his idea of the, that everybody really knows what's right is at best somewhat ahistorical. I think people, societies that have been very successful and very moral within their frame would totally reject it. I mean, not just like the Romans, but say the Vikings. Mm. I mean, the Vikings, very coherent in internal set of beliefs which to us, well, I mean, we, we amuse ourselves by you know, watching shows where we, like, see the Vikings beating up on people and so on. But the internal moral code was completely alien to us. Right. I mean, just bizarrely completely alien to us. Yet, they were clearly choosing ordered liberty within their frame. And virtue, it just, it's different, it's just alien to us. And we're not completely alien, but the, the Venn diagram of Viking morality, <laughs> virtuous, let's see, the Venn diagram of C.S. Lewis's morality and Viking morality Ragnar doesn't have pretty small.
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay.
0: Oh, I enforce Aristotle's statement, but it, it's not self-executing.
1: Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And so, what role does religion play in enforcing morality and virtue in society? This is obviously something that you could debate all day, but it does seem like an important question.
0: I think in almost all societies, it plays. It plays a extremely significant and usually the most significant role, even if at one step removed that is maybe the case that in the average person's choices it matters more what his his family group or kin group or friend group thinks of his choices. but those choices, what they think of what you do is in almost all societies, ultimately informed by some set of religious beliefs. Even if people don't hold those religious beliefs devoutly, it's still formed by that religion. I mean, this has been true, for example, of Christianity. I mean, famously throughout Europe, all through the Middle Ages, much of the peasantry was dubiously Christian. Mm-hmm. That is, you know, They would they, they, they go to church and so on, but there's endless laments from the church hierarchy that basically the peasants are uneducated, half-pagan, and just generally... You know, not fifth Christians, but they still, you know, largely they operated within a Christian moral frame, even if they weren't very good on the doctrine of things. I don't know if they you know, prayed to saints for magic cures or what have you. I mean, combining the sync you know, at the extreme syncretic religions that you saw that in the edges of Europe, where you know, like in Lithuania or what have you, where Christianity came relatively late, but Histi- to me, history is somewhat less interesting. I mean, it's very interesting, but like, what does religion imply for our future? And I think that th- th- this is a very important question in the sense that to the extent we are going to have any kind of, I don't want to say societal renewal because I think our society is over, but some successor society out of this society that has lines of continuity back to the old society, I think there's essentially zero chance that can happen Without some kind of fairly extreme religious revival or re- reawakening in the West, I mean, I would prefer that be Christianity, and I think uh, Christianity is the most likely candidate, and because that's historically been the backbone of Western civilization, at least for two thousand years. But you can imagine it not. I mean, it's not going to be Islam. I mean, Churchill's words about Islam and its enervating effect on societies are entirely accurate. But maybe it'll be Mormonism. You know, something that's <laughs> sl- slightly askew from. I mean. Technically, Mormons aren't Christians, but they don't believe in the Trinity. But, you know, they have, definitely have Christian elements. So you could imagine some kind of new religion sweeping the land kind of thing. Or you could imagine a throwback, some kind of rigorous form of Christianity. But until people, this goes back to your question. People need to change their ways, right? We, as a society, need to change their ways. I mean, you and I, the beneficiaries of a lot of freedom, and we've made something of our lives in the sense that presumably neither of us leads hugely disordered lives, and we're not going to, you know, reach for our fentanyl vial after we're done with this interview or something. (laughs) Whereas it's like Elon Musk, you know, smoking weed with Joe Rogan. But in order for the society to adopt a new way of thinking. The only real way for that to happen in practice for people to make that choice that I am now going to change my life and adopt a new way of thinking is for people to individually choose to adopt a more religious, a rigorous religious outlook and for everyone around them to choose that as well in order to make them maintain that choice. Because otherwise, there's, you, know, we just, you end up in this pool of nothingness and chaos.
1: Right. What do you make of Jordan Peterson's idea of utilitarian Christianity. I don't think he has called it that, but that's my interpretation of it is he's been, I haven't followed his work in the last few years, but I remember he's been notoriously reluctant to answer the question of how far his faith goes with Christianity. And I like him overall, by the way. So before anybody gets upset about that, you know, I I think he is a net positive, put it that way. But I do wonder, a question I would have for him is, is just pretending to believe in these tenets enough to really reorder society sufficiently? Or do you need to buy into the, I won't say spiritual because I know you don't like that word, but the more religious underpinnings of the Christian faith, like you know the resurrection, all of this stuff. Do you need to have that undergirding the behaviors?
0: I think, just thinking about it out loud, <clears throat> you can run a society which has religious trappings where people... Most people don't really believe devoutly in their in religious beliefs, but they order their lives as if they did because that's the societal expectation. Mm. That can be a successful society, but you can't move from here to there on that basis. That is, you have to start at the higher level where everyone's devout and cares deeply, and then you kind of go down an energy state where the society is still run on those bases, but maybe people aren't as, as, as devout as they were, and then eventually you devolve lower than that. There's no path from where we are now with our you know, completely atomized, non-religious society where people who claim to be religious don't, aren't, for the most part, religious at all. they are mega church people who believe in moralistic therapeutic deism. There's no point where that society says, we don't really believe in Christianity, but Jordan Peterson is right. We need to act as if we believe in Christianity. I mean, that's just not, not a winning strategy.
1: Yeah, but it seems better than the alternative.
0: Right, but it, it, only, it will only ever be adopted on a micro level yes. by people. So, or even, a, I mean, Jordan Peterson is very influential. I think he's somewhat less influential than he used to be because he, one of my criticisms of Peterson lately is that since he returned to public life, he does not direct any messages at young men mm. directly at all. Mm. That is he, and that's why he's no longer attacked, because he no longer is a menace to the system because he, you know, young white men are the most oppressed group in America. And he was dangerous because he was giving them a consciousness. Now he's completely dropped that in favor of what I would call more generic self-help philosophy. And I went, I went to see him speak last year and I was sorely disappointed for a variety of reasons Mm. among them that his daughter was clearly running the show and his daughter is a very defective in a variety of ways. But I think Jordan Peterson People who follow Jordan Peterson may adopt utilitarian Christianity in order to maximize their life goals and life returns. Hmm. That doesn't help society as a whole, except in a narrow area, because like that person's life may get better. His family's life may become more ordered, better. But that doesn't scale beyond that, because out there, there's all these people, 98 percent of the world who have never heard of Jordan Peterson and aren't doing that. You have to have 98 percent of society adopt this new set of principles. And the other 2% will just keep the mouth shut. And right now we have the
1: He may disagree with you on the, the point about not being controversial enough. His last few, I saw a brouhaha on Twitter about him going after trannies pretty hard. Well,
0: I'm off Twitter for Lent. And okay. so I I feel for Orthodox Lent since Orthodox, which is a week, Orthodox Easter is a week later. And so I've been off Twitter for, what, three weeks now? And and I've been missing a lot of stuff, but but I feel cleansed. So <laughs> I yeah. don't have to listen to t- I heard there was this whole controversy about Jordan Peterson posting some weird ass video and I I, I, like that, I, no. I was not exposed to this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I
1: don't spend much time on it, but it was I, I rely on my friends to send me links from Twitter and then I'll open them up and check them and this made it through the filter. So. Okay,
0: well, I I try to stay even away from the links though. My my exception is that if like something some really big news happens, I would check but like, for example, this whole like Silicon Valley Bank thing oh. this past weekend, apparently like Twitter spent all weekend talking about it and I spent all weekend working in the garden. Yeah. So <laughs> well, I think I had on that deal. Yeah, no, I,
1: I think that is a very intelligent choice. So that actually leads me to this point about individual self-gain being a motivation for religious belief and also stoicism. So I've read a decent amount about stoicism. I wouldn't call myself an expert, but what are your thoughts on this? Because it seems to me Like if we go back to our Venn diagram, there is a lot of overlap between that and something like therapeutic, moralistic deism. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on this, because it's become very popular. And it's almost the way people talk about it, it is as if it were a religion. Like I practice stoicism. I am a practicing stoic.
0: Well, I mean, I know not much about stoicism. I mean, like every other young person I read, Marcus Aurelius' meditations once upon a time, and and I found them actually to be quite interesting and, and, and valuable. Beyond that, kind of what classical Stoicism consists of and what that relates to today's Stoicism, I couldn't say. I don't think that's bad, but I don't think it's meaningful because Mm -hmm. it's basically the same thing as utilitarian Christianity. People are crying out for meaning in the modern world. And there's different avenues to pursuing that. Obviously, some people choose extremely destructive avenues self-destructive destructive of society and then they discover that they they've destroyed themselves and the people around them and they don't still don't have any meaning stoicism i for the right kind of person probably can provide meaning but like all things that you know, it's a hard road to have a philosophy that guides you that doesn't that offers you, a, you know, the the beauty of christianity is that it offers you hope for beyond this life hmm. And I think people who are disciplined and educated, Marcus Aurelius, can achieve meaning in this life through something that doesn't offer them. I think it's very difficult to stay that path and not be somewhat skeptical that people who say, now I'm a practicing Stoic, if you come back to them in five years, will still be adhering to that in any meaningful way. I think it's people trying to find meaning, and this is what they're trying now. I'm just guessing, though. I don't know anybody, so I could be
1: unfairly malignant. Yeah, to me, it seems like a very helpful set of principles for dealing with various you know, problems that you run into in life. But beyond that, I personally haven't seen much to it. Right? There's like a collection of helpful mental models, you could say, for how to talk to yourself.
0: So yeah. everyone needs that because you're you not getting those in school. You're not getting those from your parents most of the time. You're not getting those from people around you because the, the message is do whatever you want, self-empowerment, et cetera. So it, certainly it's a lifeline. I'm not criticizing it. I mean, I certainly think people... If everyone in society became seriously stoic, it will be a massive improvement in our society. Yes. So I'm not knocking it. I'm just I just doubt it has any longevity.
1: Yeah, it seems helpful, but not complete in my opinion. So one thing you mentioned, I forget which article or podcast, but that most people don't understand or apply Marcus Aurelius properly or you know sufficiently. Can you expand on that?
0: If I said that, it wasn't recently. Okay. So probably at the time, I had a more more, more concrete uh, concrete idea of it. But I think that. This is true for for any modern application. Mm. And I kind of hinted at that when I talked about whether classical Stoicism is the same thing as modern Stoicism. People who take, for lack of a less cheesy term, ancient wisdom and attempt to apply it to modernity tend to end up like Oprah in The Secret. You know, the universe has a plan for you. I mean, you know, what the hell? So, you know, and they pay, and they as you say, it's, it overlaps with moralistic therapeutic deism. You pick and choose the things that kind of make you feel good about the choices you've already made, rather than saying, I need to make changes in my life. Those are hard changes that require me to undergo suffering and discipline, and I'm going to get started today. That's less attractive than, Marx Aurelia says, you know, yes, I should eat that whole Costco pizza, even though it's 3,500 calories, because it's an occasion to discipline myself by not having the breadsticks. <laughs> 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 that's how they re- i'm just I guessing that's how they re- practice
1: yeah yeah uh, uh, looking at people around for
0: the record i once did eat a whole costco p10 it was 3500 calories because nice. so i looked it up the next day and i washed it down with a bunch of whiskey my wife was out of town <laughs> and we didn't have kids i'm like this sounds like an idea and
1: it wasn't we used to shop at costco as well and the thing we would get was the frozen tiramisu things that was like a, a treat they have these big blocks of frozen tiramisu I didn't realize, that was the first tiramisu I'd ever had, and I didn't realize you're supposed to let it thaw, so my brother and I would eat it like ice cream, just sticking spoons into it.
0: It might be better that way, for all I know. It Still, better. that's not what Marcus Aurelius means by stoicism. <laughs> you know, you're stuffing the paste in the piece. I think people interpret it, things that
1: Probably way. not. So a term we've mentioned a few times is, is it moralistic therapeutic deism or therapeutic moralistic deism? I always forget.
0: I think it's moralistic therapeutic
1: Okay, it starts deism, with the moralistic. Yeah. So what is this why does it matter?
0: So I didn't coin the term, obviously, and it was popularized by by Rod Dreher, who who hates me, but he does hate me, as it happens. I know because I've talked to people uh, who talked to him about me. Be that as it may, he popularized it to to his credit. And and moralistic therapeutic deism uh, and it's probably a better definition. But the idea that uh, you're basically hollowing out Christianity and wearing it as a skin suit. The basic principle of moralistic therapeutic there is a God and he wants me to be happy and he affirms my choices and Jesus is my friend, but he's not a judgy friend. Like, you know, you know, when I'm committing adultery, you know, he doesn't, he He just finds somewhere else to be rather than, than telling me I should stop doing that sin because that's judgy. So moralistic therapeutic deism is basically a way for people to feel that they're religious without going all the way to saying I'm spiritual but not religious, but effectively being the same.
1: Hmm. When you said that I thought of Buffalo it was a yeah, Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs, like I'd worship me, the skin suit. <laughs> yes. uh, and, uh, I,
0: the problem with moralistic therapeutic deism is that again it goes back to the point we were discussing about stoicism. It doesn't require anything of you. Mm. So therefore, in a sense it's meaningless. It's a way of validating your choices, which brings us back to your you know, earlier discussion about People want to do what they want to do, and that's no way to run a society if there's no limits on that and you see this i mean people ridicule and i think I, mega churches right there's there's a whole bunch of mega churches right around me and or close to me, and they have this one called thrive I'm like you know their actual name is thrive like you know if you come here, you're going to thrive, and by that they don't mean thrive in the kingdom come they mean you 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 can get a new car. And you know, it's, it, it's like the prosperity gospel right. and these kind of, which, which has nothing to do with religion. I mean, if, if Jesus Christ came back today, he'd like beat these people with a stick. And so, <laughs> I it's like I think he would. I mean, he hasn't told me, but you know, he it, has a record. If I
1: these people out of the temple, <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it's funny the the thing with Christ beating up the money lenders in the temple. Someone pointed out to me the other day that I think it, the the story appears in two of the gospels, but in one of them. It doesn't just say they beat up the moneylenders. It says that he sat down and plated a whip. So he like sat down, took the time to make somebody to beat them up with, <laughs> and beat them. rather than just like, you know, getting upset. He he actually, you know, puts a print Very into meticulous. it. Very ridiculous. So I, I think that says something.
1: Well, speaking of that, let's talk about weapons, one of my favorite topics. So... That was one of the things that we connected over. I wanted to get your thoughts on this. So in my mind, I'll just read from my notes because I this was the best I could phrase it. So the two most important questions right now related to guns are, what role do weapons play in our current moribund society? And what role should they play in a future post-liberal society? And how does the former influence the latter?
0: Yeah, I think that the role of guns in America has bizarrely achieved nearly infinite importance as we slide towards it's commonly called a narco-tyranny following Sam Francis, but is really just a form of factionalism where the left attempts to use its favored clan groups to extract value from other groups and to dominate them. That is, if the average normal person in America is in desperate need of guns simply to protect himself from the predations of the government, which we'll get to in a second, but more importantly, the predations of people who are enabled by the government in order to harm them. You saw this, obviously, in, in the Floyd riots. I always make the point, though, that the Floyd riots aren't a great example because the Floyd riots only took place and people were only attacked, with rare exceptions, in areas where people didn't have guns or if they did have guns, the prosecutors would go after them. I mean, in my area, for example, yeah, there were no Floyd riots because people would just get mowed down in the streets and the prosecutor would laugh. And so nobody bothered. But. The reason guns are important is because that, that that cannot be counted on in the next iteration of the Floyd riots, which is inevitable. And so every and I I've said this before, but I went to law school in Chicago, so I have all these lawyer friends. I worked in Chicago for several years, lawyer. I have all these shit you know lawyer friends who are you know live in the suburbs of Chicago and you know don't like guns. And to a, to a man and a woman, they've all gone out and bought a gun since the Floyd riots. It's totally bizarre to me to see these, like, you know, middle-aged Jewish lawyers who are my, my close friends who, like, for years I've told them, hey, man, you should get a gun. And they, like, roll their eyes. And, you know, here they are getting a gun and, and a concealed carry permit. So I think that guns are crucially important for the immediate future in America. And I suspect you agree with me, but I'd be interested in what you think. And, of course, they're, they're crucially important for the same reason that the Second Amendment was put into place, which is to ultimately, if necessary, to enable us to resist the government. Which, under the right leadership, would be trivially easy, given the relative weakness of the government and the huge amounts of guns in in private ownership. I mean, you always hear the statistic, 300 million guns in private ownership, but I've been hearing that same number. I mean, it's, it's, it's probably the analyses I've seen put it closer to a billion, and that's not including the ones that I can make in my illegally in my garage. So, guns are important for us to us. Before society is remade, society will go much further down. And if you don't want yourself or your loved ones to get harmed or exploited or killed, you know, guns are the way to prevent that. There is no you know, there is no other, except no substitutes, as yes. they say.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the first counter argument that people usually make against the, the idea that gun ownership will do anything. I think Joe Biden actually made this point not too long <laughs> ago about F-15s, right? Like, well, you know, you, you can't take on the government. We've got F-15s, something like that. Fair enough. You know, there's no question at this point that the U.S. military is the most, at least technologically, the most well-equipped military the planet has ever seen, right? Like if you get the right people. What's that? Sorry.
0: One drone since yesterday, but.
1: (laughs) That's fine. We'll we'll make some more. (laughs) (laughs) But the point being is just if there was some kind of just open warfare, civil war between the populace and the United States military, and they actually turned the screws and went down. Sure, it probably wouldn't be pretty. But then there's also the question of the moral element of war. And this is something I need to give Victor Davis Hansen a lot of credit for is it takes something like Vietnam. This is a perfect example, I think, where if you look at the, oh man, what was it called? The big uprising in 1968. I'm blanking on the name.
0: In, in Vietnam? Yes. Oh I mean, man,
1: it's embarrassing. I... Ted... Yes, Tet Offensive. Thank you. So if you look at something like that and you actually look at these statistics, he covers this, I think, in the Western way of war. It was a resounding victory for the United States. I mean, not even close. But the media and the public sentiment did turn away from the war because we just weren't down for that, that kind of conflict because we still lost more than we were willing to lose. And I think we would see something similar in the United States. Then there's the question of the fact that there's a joke in the infantry that you wouldn't have an infantry if it wasn't for Appalachia, if it wasn't for Florida, Texas, these kinds of states. I don't see many Floridians, Texans, or West Virginians siding with the government, at least en masse, at least the very competent ones.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm not a military expert, but it's well known, not just what you say, but the the number of people, of men in the military who are actually capable of sustained fighting in the sense of training and so on, isn't that many. Yes. And, you know, they're scattered all over the world. And if you brought them all back to America, they could like, you know, cover half a small state, basically. I mean- the military has a bunch of, and you have contractors and so on, but but and you, the military has a bunch of people who are you know, on the books, but you know, are not really capable of urban operations or rural operations against Americans, and especially against Americans, many of whom have served in the military and are armed to the teeth, and, yes. and that's going to be a very disproportionate battle if you send out the fat supply chain National Guardsmen okay. to like some guy who's thirty-five angry at the world and you know served and served over. right it just it just i i spend no time worrying about the government like the f16's yeah. problem it, 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 i mean that just argument seems just so obviously self defeating even aside from the, the memes of the, like the afghan tribesmen you know handing the rainbow flag to the, to the marine leaving saying take your flag with <laughs> you <laughs> 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 I just, I mean, whether or not I'll come to that, I can't say, but obviously, but the idea that the United States government is going to become a military tyranny with its boot on our neck, like some kind of, you know, good it just seems, but what makes it silly is the fact that there's all these guns.
1: Yes. Yeah. It's something, you know, so I talk to Europeans a lot and it's something they really can't wrap their head around. As you said, I think the official number now, if I'm correct, is somewhere north of 400 million guns in the US, which already, if you just take that at face value, it's about one and a half you know, 1.3 guns per person in the United States. Yeah, and as you said, it's it's way more than that, especially if you look at all the yeah. unregistered guns over time, which there are a lot of, thankfully.
0: Well, plus, you know, if things were to kick off, I mean, I, I like the old joke, like if you ever really need a machine gun, they'll be available for free on the street. Yes. And uh, or more relevantly, your people will be, you know, if, if you wanted to add to your store of guns, there's plenty of you know, people who will sell you those guns once law and order decays, yes. whether those are, and then, I mean, the point of having light arms isn't just that you can use them like the Afghans. You can use them to acquire heavier arms. Yes, very much. I mean, I wouldn't know what to do with, like, a shoulder-launched missile, but there are people who do, <laughs> who and, who have ways of getting those things very rapidly, because that's just the way the world works. I mean, you see this in the Bosnian war, for mm-hmm. example. Once you start flooding the area with heavier weapons, and by heavier, I don't mean, like, main battle tanks, but, you know, mortar, shoulder-launched rockets, and so on. Those things have a way of flowing to the people with the cash and the need. You know, it just it works. I mean, it just it just
1: does. Yes, definitely. Yeah, my thinking on that with the Second Amendment too, and this is something I do go into in the book, is I think the, I mean, I'm obviously a fan of the NRA as far as it goes. I know they have their issues, but I think on the whole, again, they're a net positive and there are several other organizations obviously that are worth supporting too. But the thing, and I understand why they do this, that they very much focus on the personal defense aspect of weapons ownership. And an interesting theory, I think I heard this from John Lott, who's written a fair amount about this, is that after Clinton, I believe it was 94 to 2004, we had this magazine restriction in place, federal magazine restriction. So after that went into place, the marketing shifted for most gun companies, where they wanted to market guns that were smaller, that could comply with the magazine mm-hmm. restriction, which generally means small pocket pistols, purse pistols, whatever you want to call them, things like Glock 43s and whatnot. And so the, the message shifted more toward self-protection instead of, if you look at what the founding fathers wrote about this, and I think it is important to look at all the context around it, because the Second Amendment is so concise and, I think, deliberately vague. I think they knew that weapons technology would be progressing rapidly and that's one of the reasons they didn't specify, you know, muzzle loading smoothbore weapons with, you know, a ball in, or a socket bayonet or whatever. But if you look at say John Adams, he has this amazing line that is like a throwaway line in his writings where he's talking about how the federal government if they were ever to go into open conflict with the citizenry, they would be facing 500,000 armed men who knew what they were doing. And it was just laughable. The idea that they would be able to, to take them on and tyrannize them was just a joke at that point.
0: And you're right. It's a very American thing. Like other people can't wrap their, wrap their minds with it. I think that in a future society, to answer the back half of your question, I think that that would continue to be important. Yes. That is, I think that any person or group who is establishing a new society would, because everybody likes to have control, I mean, having like George Washington again and obviously George Washington put down the Whiskey Rebellion and so on. So it wasn't like George Washington was like, let's have a revolution forever. But like having extremely virtuous men running a new society isn't exactly the historical norm. So the chances that the new rulers wouldn't be all that virtuous, might be terrible for all I know, and would desire to clamp down on weapons is pretty high. That, That strikes me as bad. The solution to that is probably to have smaller states rather than a smaller country, rather than a bigger country. So you you, know, you have a higher level of trust in a smaller country and weapons are, are an element of that trust. I don't know what that would hold for the future, but I would be very I would be disappointed in the future if that were to happen, because I think an armed society is a polite society. Yes. And that's Heinlein's statement. It's, and people misunderstand that. It's not a polite society because people are afraid that if they say the wrong thing, they're going to get shot. An armed society is a polite society because people are aware of the responsibility of having weapons. And that informs the way that they be day-to-day with their neighbors, even when unarmed. It's not a. It, it, Heinlein wasn't suggesting that everyone pops off whenever someone looks at them funny. It's a question of how society structures itself and weapons are a part of that. You see this in Switzerland, for example. Mm. I mean, the Swiss have always been big on weapons. It, it's pitched typically as like, and nowadays the, the Swiss government as a decays, it, it tries to restrict weapons and claim that the only rationale for it is so that people can bring their weapons to rally points with these nation calls them into the formal military. But that's, of course, not the, the Swiss reality of history. The whole point of everybody having weapons was to have to maintain the freedoms of their cantons and piss on the federal government. What federal government? Yeah. <laughs> so that's the kind of society that I think would be ideal. I mean, whether that could be implemented in some future variation of the United States. is a.
1: The thing that I think is very different about the Second Amendment versus past views on weapons ownership, I don't know if this is entirely good or bad. There are arguments against it. But in the past, at least if you look at England and even Rome as well, arms ownership was generally considered more of a responsibility than a right. It wasn't, oh, you can't disarm me because I'm a loyal citizen. It was more the government was generally, especially in England, saying, we want you to practice with the longboat. We want you to have this spear in your house so you can join the feared when we need you. Or to impose law and order in your local society. It wasn't just Alfred the Great mustering everybody. It was a local matter too, like the hue and cry in small towns, that sort of thing. And I think the Founding Fathers, they carried on that tradition because to them, if you look at their writings, it was much more that the main goal was defense against the government messing around and things that shouldn't be. And then the fact that you could defend yourself was just incidental. It was considered obvious to them
0: no, that may, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think that, and that that is very visionary. I would certainly hope that we, as a society, could maintain that, can and will maintain that vision. I think in the short term, though, the, the problems are unfortunately more immediate. That's probably a problem for, you know, future us.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> have you have you read? This is a cliched question, but have you read *The Gulag Archipelago* by Solzhenitsyn? Oh yes,
0: I mean years ago, thirty years ago. Now, okay, because I'm old.
1: Oh, but yes. So there's a passage in there. I was going to read some quotes from Machiavelli, which I think are relevant too. but basically saying when you disarm people, they get upset and it's just not going to go well for you. Even if you are being, again, this is Machiavelli we're talking about. So he's not, this isn't a moralistic question for him. It's a practical one of if you take guns away from these people, you're going to piss them off. They'd be, it'd be much better to keep them happy and armed and on your side. But I think this, one of the best cases for private weapons ownership, especially vis-a-vis the government is actually, I think it was in a footnote in the Gulag Archipelago. I had to go find it. But I'll read the full quote here if you bear with me. So, and how we burned in the camps later. So this is him writing about after he had already been gooned and taken into the gulag. And this was like a, a common conversation they would have inside these gulags. Is, and how we burned in the camps later thinking, what would things have been like if every security operative, when he went out at night to make an arrest, had been uncertain whether he would return alive and had to say goodbye to his family? Or if during periods of mass arrests, people had not simply sat there in their lairs, pawling with terror at every bang of the downstairs door and at every step on the staircase, but had understood that they had nothing left to lose and had boldly set up in the downstairs hall an ambush of half a dozen people with axes, hammers, pokers, or whatever else was at hand. After all, you knew ahead of time that those blue caps, the Cheka or the secret police, were out at night for no good purpose, and you could be sure ahead of time that you'd be cracking the skull of a cutthroat. Or what about the Black Maria, that's a car they would drive, sitting out there on the street with one lonely chauffeur? What if he had been driven off and its tires spiked? The organs would very quickly have suffered a shortage of officers and transport, and, notwithstanding all of Stalin's thirst, the cursed machine would have ground to a halt. I I mean, I can't think of a better counter-argument than that.
0: But here's my question to you. Historically, that never happens. Yeah. Why not? I mean, you see this even like a small scale. I explored this at one point when I was reading Robert Browning's Ordinary Men, which mm. is about a Polish police unit which ended up massacring a lot of Jews in rural villages in Galicia. But you know it, it, why, it, the explanation is why these men did that psychologically. Because you know, if you'd asked them pre-war, they would not have identified themselves as that kind of guy. But the question is like, why didn't any of these people fight back at all? And you see this all the time. Like you sure. can line people up a machine gun and they won't, They I mean, I find this to be very troubling. Why people don't do that? I wonder why it is.
1: That's a good question. I don't have a, a simple answer. Do you think part of it might be that, say, the people, these NKVD coming to the home and knocking on the door, they have an ideology backing them, whereas the, you know, Solzhenitsyn referred to himself and many others as rabbits. They were just these kind of individuals shivering in the corner. Yeah. There wasn't a cohesive thing you could kind of pin your, you know, your loyalty to. It
0: itself doesn't strike me as enough. Like I, I think it's like something in human nature you figure that something will always turn up. Mm. Like, see, it won't be that bad. Or, you know, they'll interrogate me and let me come back later that day. Or, you know, the machine gun's going to jam. Or, I mean, there's exceptions, obviously, but they're pretty rare. And the the exceptions are invariably small groups of young men. Yes. Right? (laughs) I mean, shockingly, shockingly, exactly, nobody. The only people who actually fight back are small groups or individuals among young men.
1: True. I'm sure you could find some counterexamples, maybe like partisans in Lithuania or something like that. But as you said, it is the exception, not the norm.
0: But that that's, that's not even a, I'm not to go too proud of that. Story, partisan is an, uh, obviously not, not to detract, detract from partisan work, good or bad. It obviously requires an enormous amount of bravery. But that's planned
1: mm, as true. opposed to
0: reacting or coming to you. That is true. With no willing force where you're probably going to die either way, but you know, let's go I mean, people will always choose the passive route. I mean, if you go join the partisans, it's certainly you know, beneficial. If, if In Solzhenitsyn's example, partisans w- wouldn't make sense, but people didn't do that either. In the moment, people won't fight back. I find this to be very strange. Maybe I mean, I mean uh, hopefully, they're not coming for me yet, but when they do, I, you know, I don't know what I, what I would do. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll answer the question for myself. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that actually brings me, it's an interesting point with Ernst Jünger. So this is a little bit of a strange leap but one of the things i found interesting about him is that he did not seem like a warmonger that wasn't the impression i got for him that he was completely blinded by you know these like vague dreams of glory like you see in all quiet on the western front it was more that he just had very important questions about himself that he wanted to answer about you know what he was capable of both good and bad you know bad just meaning inflicting suffering on others and he wanted to test himself in the world war and you know obviously he joined the french foreign legion before that but i don't know, what is your your take I, again we emailed about this a little bit with younger but oh. As far as I can tell, that was in some ways, he's impossible to summarize, but is, that is in some ways one of the driving forces of his actions was this idea of how will I react when I'm thrown into these situations that I don't understand.
0: I mean, Junger, Junger is, a, is one of these unique individuals. He you know, bestrode the 20th century, managed to get through the, almost the whole 20th century, surprising everybody, including himself, I'm sure, managed to last I and mean, died at 102 or something. And I think that his his writings on testing himself, I think, are very informative. And I think that kind of goes back to stoicism, that there's—young men today could learn a lot from adopting elements of that approach in their own lives rather than kind of drifting around. I also think that he says a, a lot, and maybe maybe we touched on this in our email correspondence, in his, what I regard as a trilogy, The Forest Passage on the Marble Cliffs and uh, Umusville, about how one should— in a tyrannical society, and different kinds of tyrannical societies, and so on. I think that's also very informative for people living in today's society, because I mean, Junger never really focused on totalitarian tyranny, how to live in a totalitarian tyranny of, say, the Soviet Union in the 1930s or 1950s kind of thing. His focus was more, and I think this is underappreciated, on Western-type tyrannies mm. that are not as totalitarian seeming as that, and how how a man should live in that, and how a man should react, and and to kind of tie it together, he has a line, I think it's in Eumusville, where he talks about how the spirit of society should, the spirit of, he talks about William Tell a lot and about the, the householder father standing in the doorway with his axe. And so I think that those books are extremely interesting. That is, I I read a lot of Carl Schmidt. I mean, I know I sound like, you know, sounding like I'm some kind of 1930s German admirer to an extent, which is not true. But. Junger is much more accessible, and okay. I think of much greater applicability to the average person. Encourage, I think people should read Junger.
1: Have you read his book On Pain? That was a an interesting one.
0: No, I On Pain, The Glass Bees and The Worker are are up in the queue, okay. but but I haven't read them yet.
1: Pain was very, or On Pain was very interesting. It, it There's some overlap with stoicism, but I think, yeah, I'm still wrapping my head around it, so I won't try to embarrass myself well, by going too far into it.
0: Well, I'm going to read them all, because unless, unless I, you know, die... So I'm looking forward to it because, like I say, every time I read a younger book, I come away eh, enriched is maybe a trite way of putting it. But but I think that's true. And I think particularly for like, I'm not a young man and my life has plenty of meaning. But if you're a young man whose life is lacking meaning, I think a lot of these books are really kind of
1: the central idea, as far as I understand it and on pain, is just. And it seems very obvious, but it is something that most people reject nowadays, especially liberalism, is the idea that pain is intractable. You cannot run away from it. Even the idea of boredom, right? So all of your material needs are met. Maybe you have a great wife and a great family, and you just don't do that much with your life. You don't have meaning. Boredom, I think as he puts it, it is pain, you know, spread over time is how you know, I'm butchering it a little bit. Yeah. But it is just this dissolution of pain over time, which is true. I mean, I think everyone has experienced that. And his point is that how you respond to pain, because if something is impossible to run away from, you have to address that. Like, what is the proper way to deal with something that is like that, like oxygen or food or sex mm-hmm. or anything like that? And his solution was essentially you know, dealing with it, <laughs> to, to put it bluntly. I mean, really embracing it and trying to harness that and use it for something better. That's how I understand it.
0: Is there, is there a stoicism overlap there?
1: I think so. But the thing I have with stoicism, maybe it's just a semantic issue, is stoicism almost seems to me is too passive. It's too just accepting, oh, this is the way it is. All right, I'll bear this burden as best I can. Or he was much more, if he was a stoic, this is how I think of it at least. If you read Storm of Steel and he was a stoic, would he have gone voluntarily into enemy trenches at night just because of boredom? Yeah. You know, I think what he would have done is hunker down and say, all right, I'll you know, do my duty and then get out of here. But he writes about like having a great time going into enemy trenches, having grenades thrown at him. He loved it.
0: You should read Erwin Rommel before he became famous wrote a book about his World War One experiences, mm. which is a bestseller in Germany called Infantry Attacks. And he describes the same thing like I really he's like I was like I had the I had the greatest time throwing grenades at people. It was so yeah. <laughs> I'm like, okay dude Yeah. Uh, but at the same
1: kind of attitude. And this is a guy, too, who he was lucky in many ways. I think there were 10 or 15 moments where I was like, he is so lucky that that happened the way it did and he didn't die. But then also he got shot in the chest multiple times. He had parts of his finger blown off. He almost bled to death at one point. He had to run through enemy lines to get back to his own lines when he was already shot in the chest and bleeding out.
0: Nonetheless, people could do a lot worse than especially young men from, from reading, reading stuff like that.
1: Right. But The reason I bring that up is just that he, I think a Stoic would have been how can I, you know, deal with this but not necessarily embrace it? When he was, as you said, just, just I loved my experience. That was it was an incomparable schooling of the heart. I think is how he put it.
0: You're right. It is a totally different attitude. Yeah. I mean, some overlap maybe, but nonetheless, I think that's unique. I don't think everyone necessarily needs to adopt that. I'm pretty sure I'm not going to adopt that quite that. But the fact that there are men like that is very instructive to people, I think, in just their daily lives.
1: Right. And I think it explains also how it's a very interesting paradox. I've talked to a lot of soldiers, especially, especially veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan. And I remember one guy in particular, his name was Chris, and he was actually working at Domino's Pizza at the time. And I met with him and talked to him about his experiences. And he Served, I think, three or four tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, and he was shot, like straight up shot, you know, right through the leg, almost, you know, nicked his femoral artery, blown up with IEDs multiple times. In one case where everybody else, I think, either died or was severely maimed, and he had absolutely no regrets whatsoever. He said getting shot at, not shooting at people, but getting shot at was the greatest feeling in the world that he would go back in a heartbeat if they let him do it. And there was no political element to that. He did not care about you know, liberating the Iraqis. And you know, I don't think he was a bad guy or like, liked suffering, but that was not his motivation. It was much more of, this is exciting and I want to test myself alongside other people.
0: I mean, that kind of goes back to what we were talking earlier about differences between men and women, because you know, there are no women who think that. And I had a friend, a close friend from law school, I mean, he was a lawyer, so this was 20 years ago, but he signed up an enlisted man in the army. Uh, in like 2003 or something and he served like, i think two tours as a sapper like in like darkest afghanistan yeah. like in blowing stuff up like you know in those valleys you know and he it was the greatest thing ever i mean he says that, i mean I, know, he, I, I haven't asked him about i getting shot at but I mean, he just thought it was the most awesome time he ever had i mean he was he had been married i think divorced by this point and you know, he had a daughter yeah i don't think she was living with him but so he, he even even with some external obligations he Thought it was the greatest.
1: Thing. Sebastian Younger, who has written a lot about this, he wrote The Perfect Storm and, you know, he did the documentary Restrepo. <clears throat> and he said that one of the things that is so hard for civilians to wrap their head around is the idea that one of the most traumatic things about combat is having to give it up for most soldiers. It is, you know, that addictive. Interesting. Yeah. But anyway. Oh.
0: So I'm too old to probably acquire that taste. Yeah. So, the, who knows? Yeah, maybe, as you know, I like to joke that when I become the armed patronage, head of an armed patronage network around my house, maybe I'll, but even then, I I, I think I will not, you know, I'm too old to acquire the taste for combat. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm probably similar. I don't, that's also a question of how you will respond and everything. But I think the reason it's worth saying these things is not to, you know, to glorify war. You know, I think most of the wars we've been in have been mistakes, but it is to acknowledge, you know, going back to the differences between men and women. All young men have a fascination with violence, I think. I mean, I think to some degree or another, lesser or more, but they're all interested in understanding how to use it and what are the appropriate ways to use it in society. And it's something you don't have an answer to nowadays, not you specifically, but society does not give you an answer.
0: Well, I mean, I I think it's worse than that. I think that, I think two things, I think that you're you're, you're told that those thoughts are toxic and make you a bad person for, for having those thoughts. And I think there is a shockingly large number of young men today who don't have those thoughts or repress them in the same way that you in know, past ages they might have repressed you know, untoward sexual thoughts. They, they repress these thoughts about violence and they return to what they've been taught since kindergarten, which is that behaving in a feminine manner is what is demanded of them. I mean, that's just also catastrophic for society.
1: What do you think of compulsory military service?
0: Like, implementing that now or just in the abstract like now it just served the regime so I think that's <laughs> not a right idea.
1: now not with our current society i think too many you'd have to lower the standards so much it wouldn't even be worth it at this point but
0: i think in a smaller society that's not an empire that has a a well-run government there's something to be said for uh, for a modest amount of compulsory military service both in terms of protecting the nation and in terms of doing something that's a, a binds together the society i mean you see this for example in Israel, I'm hardly an expert on Israel, but it's no coincidence that the Israelis have to fight for their life all the time and that they're the, even aside from the Orthodox are the only westernized country that has a above replacement birth rate. And it's because they have a, you know, a unifying goal, a sense of the future, or as, the, as Ibn Khaldun hmm. would, would say, which is completely lacking in all other countries. And, and in part, only probably a small part, but a part of that is universal male Military conscription. I mean, the Israelis also conscript women and they may there's arguments for that simply because of the existential nature of their conflict. And up until recently they would never allow women to fight, though that's been ideologically pushed a little bit. So a universal male conscription among a relatively small and tight knit nation probably makes sense. Yeah. That makes
1: sense. Now one thing that I've thought about too, and also reading your book reviews is I wonder if part of the reason that many young men feel so alienated is that most art doesn't really reflect their values and interests at all and i was wondering are there any sources of art that you have found that reflect some of these virtues and values that you talk about over say the past 30 years i was thinking about asking you 10 years but that's i think a definite no
0: well i'm a philistine right i don't have any artistic appreciation i don't have any musical talent and i can only draw a stick figure so you're asking the wrong guy no, I mean, well, no, I can say there's a Belgian, I think, a sculpture a guy named Fendus Villiers, hmm. I think he's on Twitter. You should check out his stuff. Like he does some really good, he's he's aligned. I don't know if he's right-wing, but he, he has overlaps with, with right-wing people and he interacts. He does a lot of stuff that's kind of, in some ways, he might resent this characterization. So to me, is inspired by Italian futurism. Like, I like Art Deco and Italian futurism and that kind of stuff. And I think there's a there's a guy who's been doing AI-generated, art over the past couple months i don't know his real name but he, his entity is the restoration bureau 2030 i've seen these so a lot yes of them, these, some of these are, are are really good they're pretty cool i mean are they are you know michelangelo's pieta you know, probably not they're, they i think for, for for our purposes they count as as, as inspirational so the, i think in general the art world of course is extremely hostile to people of our views and that's very unfortunate I know there's people who are trying to change that. I think that's very difficult when all the sources of income are controlled. Mm-hmm. High art depends upon patronage. And when the patrons are all commissioning the kind of works that Epstein had in his apartment while he was murdered, then you, know, you don't have a money source for great artists to arise with the kind of art that that we want. It, I'll be curious if I, so-called AI, I mean, we... we I, touching this a bit by e- email, but you know, IR is, of course, not I at all. It's statistically generated jobs. Nonetheless, it's interesting stuff. Whether something new with added human creative input could come out of that, you know, potentially, that would obviously solve part of the patronage problem. So I don't know. I mean, there's all sorts of possibilities
1: there. I do want to talk about AI next, but what about movies, books, TV shows, things like that? These are probably more common sources of media than, say, looking at sculptures or paintings nowadays. Anything that sticks out to you is at least not hyper oh, no, and leftist.
0: Well, yeah, everything sucks. Uh, by default, everything sucks. So they, we're talking about the stuff that's, you know, people are talking about Yellowstone, and Yellowstone is just terrible. Mm. I mean, Yellowstone just uh, basically, I mean, everyone's a jerk, and, and it's basically left-wing, you know, agitprop, not as bad as some. But I like The Expanse, the science fiction series. I mean, if you take out the fact that there are no women in the show, I mean, there's a bunch of people who look like women but just act like men. I mean, this is a, a common problem with modern science fiction. But if you pretend all the women are men, as a kind of thematic thing, it, the show makes it isn't bad. I like *The Man in the High Castle* and you know, science fiction-y kind of thing. Not perfect, not bad. Are these things great art or like gonna remember it forever? No, but they, but they're 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 not bad, and I think you can tease out some relevant themes from them. But I gotta say, I mean, I'm watching less and less TV and, and movies. I was on a On a long plane flight last week as American Airlines, and they offer using your device and Wi Fi, you can watch like one of 150 or so movies. Not a single one held any appeal at all. I mean, part of it was because they were categorized in, you know, black (laughs) ethnonarcissism, way of empowerment, you know. I, uh, you know, those were the categories, basically, you know, LGBTQ, you know, kind of, kind of stuff. I mean, actual movies, movies, but even the ones that were kind of movies, movies, you know, it weren't even remotely appealing. And maybe that just means I'm getting old, but I think it mostly means the movies
1: suck. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I'm, you know, I like movies. I used to like TV shows, but I, I can't say I've watched anything in a very, very long time that I enjoyed. You know, I tried to, I mean, so I'm a, a Michael Crichton fan for various reasons, both from his fiction and his nonfiction. I think I shared one of his articles with you. Very, very interesting, very flawed human being, but a very, very interesting guy who was a very independent thinker. But I tried to watch that latest Jurassic World. And I mean, Uh aside from all the kind of over-the-top CGI, it's also a difficult concept, I think, to iterate on once you've done it once. I think the, the first one was the best.
0: Well, I mean, people point this out all the time. The definition of decadence is not that you have a bunch of orgies, but rather that you can't produce anything new. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, that's a good example.
1: Yeah, you know, one thing I I've, I've have thought about is this idea that nonfiction is kind of programming for human activity, right? So like just day-to-day activity. And then fiction is programming for, you could say, a heroic ideal or the future of like how you should act versus what you are doing. Mm-hmm. I went through a phase where I more or less only read nonfiction for a very long time. And then I started to get more into fiction and I had to go to say Lord of the Rings, the Iliad, the Odyssey to find anything I really could relate to or enjoy at this point.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. I uh, I agree. I mean, I, I mean, like our children, I mean, a couple of years ago, our older children are read we had some of the modern stuff from Scholastic, but but, but ten years ago, so we simply it, when all the modern stuff went completely off the rails, we I literally stripped every book and bought books from not just Tolkien's so home, but books from the nineteen fifties, yep. like history books for children and so on. And so the younger children all lead this kind of bizarre nineteen fifties existence, which is fine by me. Uh, so far, it seems to be working out fine for me. We'll see how it goes. But because you're right, there's nothing. <clears throat> my wife, <clears throat> I read very little modern fiction. My wife reads a fair bit of modern fiction, but like, and she tries to be selective. And but most of the books she reads are just terrible because yes. it's prop at some yes, you know everyone's gay, you know, every, you know it's just it's just stupid at some point. Right. But I agree with you. characteristic of fiction and non-fiction. Good fiction and non-fiction, I think, very important preparations for life. And, Guides for life. It's just that most fiction nowadays doesn't do that,
1: right? So let's talk about AI. Speaking of art and creativity, so you are pretty skeptical about AI. It's obviously extremely popular right now. So what is the the general? uh, First of all, what is your opinion on AI? What do you think it will and won't do, and where does that come from?
0: Right, Uh, you have to kind of differentiate. So kind of. Hardest skepticism is reserved for strong AI. That is the idea that somehow we're going to produce a consciousness and that consciousness will have volition and will do ABC. I mean, I, it, you can't prove a negative, but there's no evidence of that ever happening. There's no evidence we're on a path to it. It's, it partakes in large part of what they call the first step fallacy. Mm-hmm. That is, I say, I, I declare this is the first, this action we take is the first step towards achieving AI. So therefore, the other steps are all possible. Yeah, sure, maybe I'll be wrong. There's no indication whatsoever that strong AI will ever, in the same way there's no indication we'll ever upload our brains or do any of these things, both because it's probably impossible and because I think we've reached technological apogee and are trending downward. Mm. And I'll come back to AI in a second. But so, for example, the James Webb Space Telescope is a very nice thing and it works great, but it took 20 years. And if we started today to do a successor, it would never happen. We just do. We're, in the same way that, like, we, NASA is trying to send a rocket back to the moon 60 years later, has forgotten a lot about how to do it, and its declared goal is to put blacks and women on the moon. You know, it, it's just like, you know, this is not a technologically advancing society. This is it. It's a back to decadence. It's one that's repeating itself and not very competent. So even if it were possible, we're not going to do it because we reach technological apogee. Then both, both those are my claims, so they're, they're unprovable. As far as AI in a kind of weak sense, I mean, I've been saying for probably six years now that driverless cars are never going to come. And I was told five years ago that they were going to happen that year. And every year that happens, the driverless cars are no closer. But more and more and more newspaper articles appear saying how hard it is. Yadda yadda yadda. <laughs> I mean, well, I, it's just never going to happen. Mm. And again, I can't prove that. It's not going to happen because there's no obvious path for it to happen. And the challenges are so immense that there's no sign that, especially a society that's reached technological will ever be able to overcome. So while it's pretty easy, of course, to keep a car in the straight and narrow without any unexpected, when all the variables can be controlled, there's no chance whatsoever we're going to have true autonomous cars. I mean, and I've been proven right so far because all the people like Elon Musk, who I generally like, I remember ranting in like 2019, he was like he said in 2019, "You, it will happen this year that you can buy one of my cars, take it to work, have it earn money for you all day long, and have it pick you up at the end of the day and take you home." I'm like, "This will not no, happen. Yeah. Not happen in 2019. It will never happen." Of course, Elon Musk is a little bit of a grifter. Obviously, again, I have great admiration for Musk, but he's a sales guy. He, yeah. You know, nonetheless, we're not going to have AI in the sense of driverless cars and things like you know Midjourney, you art. Know, generated so-called AI and chat GPT aren't AI at all. They're statistical modeling based upon a series of inputs that does statistical association with certain of the inputs. I mean, it's actually pretty impressive, probably more impressive than I would have admitted. You know, I, I kind of find myself wanting to poo-poo it and still being impressed. So maybe that should say something that I'm softening my position, but it's not AI. Mm-hmm. It's just a bunch of statistical processing, which gives perception of AI, and they call it AI for a reason. So that's my opinion. But I mean, if you have a different opinion about why I'm so stupid, I'd, I'd be curious.
1: No, I mean, one thing just off the top of my head before I forget is that it does raise a very interesting question. And this is something I forget the man's name, but there is a guy who is talking about the legal ramifications of AI. Because, as you said, I mean, these people who you know, open AI and these other organizations, they admit that the data that they use to create the text and the images from these AI programs is open sourced from the Internet. And where does the credit go for that, right? Where does that person who wrote that article that contributed that 0.1% to that AI-generated article, how do they get their cut, basically? So that's an interesting legal problem that I have absolutely no solution to, but I find it interesting.
0: have denied copyright protection to, at least in some countries, to, to AI-generated art for that reason, that it's not an original work, and so right. copyright protection is only available for original works.
1: Yeah, one of the so with AI, I guess one counter argument would be of a, and I, I don't think this is a very good counter argument, but I feel like I need to raise it is if you look at human powered flight, so Simon Newcomb and Lord Kelvin, of course, a very famous scientist at the time, completely dismissed it as possible, I think like months or, you know, maybe a year before the Wright brothers finally did it. Is there any relevance to that situation, to what we're seeing now? You know, are we downplaying it too much?
0: Could be. I mean, You'll only ask ask the you know very old me and older you in fifty years and and well or maybe in twenty years and we'll have an answer to that question. I think that I it, it, there's no way to know. I think the, to your point about the generation you know, text and art generation. I think these, it does have significant social consequences mm. because it exposes. One of the problems we have is elite overproduction and huge amounts of people being existing in grossly overpaid jobs. And so my one viral Twitter thread I've ever had with 20 million impressions, my one about how Musk had already made Twitter profitable, which apparently is accurate. But there's huge amounts of people who do nothing jobs and between Elon Musk firing them and ChatGPT replacing them, you are going to see societal consequences. I just regard the societal consequences as good. I think it's bad, for example, that ChatGPT and these art things are ideologically, as James Poulos says, the bots have been catechized. He's been saying this for years, so he's very predictive. It's bad that they're ideologically neutered, but that won't last forever. And anyway, the society is going to burn and then whatever comes out the other side. I mean, that's not, that, not in and of itself catastrophic.
1: My, th- I guess you could say two or three predictions about AI are, number one, that for people who are doing very low-level knowledge work. So the example that popped into my head when I first thought of this was like the little instruction manuals that you get with furniture or little press releases, legal documents, I'm sure you've had a lot of experience with that. A lot of the stuff that is just boilerplate, you change a few variables. I could see AI doing a good job with that, right? Where it is just That's statistical you know processing essentially sure. so that would be my first one. My second one would be that and I'm curious what you think of this that people who have let's say uncommon ideas about how society should be run and opinions in general will probably become more valuable and they'll get more exposure because as you said, with decadence, with AI, it is neutered, it is censored, it is manipulated. And even you know people fairly influential in the tech industry pointing this out, that people who have a different opinion that are not just reciting the same incantations they got from NPR or CNN or Fox News or wherever are going to stand out more because if you see AI as producing more of this content, you will probably have more people who stand out who are not producing that kind of content.
0: That's a good point. And I think that technology enables people to search for and find out that alternate content. That it doesn't really matter if chat GPT stuff is censored. If people want to find an alternative, technology enables that to be possible in a way that wasn't possible even 20 years ago. So on balance, it favors people who are coming up with alternative narratives.
1: If you want a fun exercise, I did this after reading one of your articles. I went into chat GPT and asked it to list five counterarguments to the enlightenment. And I made it a very softball question too. Hypothetically, if I was in a debate with somebody who was anti enlightenment but sure, surely I'm Enlightenment, you know, a fan of the Enlightenment, how would you what counter arguments would they bring up? And it just said, we just, dis- you know, I disagree with your statement, the Enlightenment is great. Here's five reasons why it's great. And then if you ask it to come up with five reasons why the Enlightenment is great, it just gives you the same answers, more or less.
0: Well, I mean, it's not surprising. But, of course, that, that will, as you say, result in it not being adopted for the, right. for those purposes. Also note that it kind of on a total non-political basis, it will make people who can provide n- knowledge that is impossible for it to generate very valuable. So mm-hmm. I used to run a woodworking business, and I have asked ChatGPT various questions about how to do woodworking. But woodworking, like any kind of manual skill or trade, or even something like surgery, involves a huge amount of tacit knowledge. Right. So it can give you, this, like, I mean, so if you ask ChatGP how to build built-in bookcases, it will give you something that is, sounds right, but in fact, completely useless for the actual project of built-in bookcases. Anything that involves handwork or that's not strictly factual, I mean, leaving aside the question of the distortions of fact, it's worse than useless because it claims to be able to tell you, but in fact, cannot tell you.
1: I wonder if that'll also increase the value of skilled labor as well. If you have, as you said, a lot of these surplus elites who are just- pushing pixels around on a screen from of their day, and you replace that with some of these programs, yeah, I mean, I would assume that people who are, you know, picking up garbage or installing Windows or whatever are going to be more valuable.
0: I don't care. I mean, ChatGPT is not going to replace them, right? Mean, <laughs> and, 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 yeah, at any level, unskilled to, to skilled labor, ChatGPT is irrelevant. So my kind of ideal scenario is where all these shitlib over, overproduced elites get thrown out on the street between Elon Musk and ChatGPT. And then they start rioting and then we can take care of them all. So, you know, that, that's <laughs> the, back to our earlier discussion. So we can get the party started because they'll be so angry. They're, the loss of their midwit jobs to AI that will cause social unrest, which the right person can take advantage
1: of. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things that, so I have a friend who's very into AI and I don't understand it well enough to mount a good counter argument, but one thing I would say, so he's an atheist and reading mere Christianity, I agree that I don't necessarily know that we all have a perfect moral compass, but I would say it rings true to me that even somebody like vikings you can say there are certain behavior patterns that are never rewarded throughout human history like disloyalty even in viking times nobody liked a cheat or a snitch or a backstabber right even you could say something like promiscuity so people point to the greeks and alcibiades people like that and even at the time it's not like people were celebrating him because of all the women he slept with it was incidental
0: I and, mean, you know, I mean, charismatic back, but not someone you wanted to
1: hold up to your children as a moral model. Right. Even at the time. And that's the interesting thing, because people will try to point to, oh, well, you know, the morality of the Roman times is completely different. And of course, it was in important ways. as I, you know, in many ways, superior probably. But I agree with C.S. Lewis's point that there is there does seem to be some vague moral framework. And, you know, you, the more the more you broaden your perspective on different cultures, the more things you have to remove that are consistent with all of them. But, you know, loyalty, bravery, you know, I don't know any culture where cowardice is rewarded or celebrated, things like that. But if you take something, the question that he raises in the beginning of the book is, where does this thing come from? If we all tacitly agree, basically, that this is how people act. You know, his answer, of course, is God. That's where it comes from. And if you believe that, even if you take kind of a moralistic therapeutic deism perspective about it, it seems like it would be impossible for AI to replicate that because it is fundamentally downstream of whatever that thing is.
0: Yes, makes sense. And what does your friend say about this? I haven't that brought what up he that,
1: says? I haven't talked to him since I started reading Mere Christianity. I think he would simply say that he disagrees with the premise that there is a omnipresent morality across humanity.
0: Well, I'd be interested in what, what he's... I mean, you hear this all the time. Like, Person X says, I have... And I know people, but not close enough to ask them detailed questions. I'm um, in... Artificial intelligence research and it's so scary. It's just this is just tip of the iceberg. You know, it's coming for us. And you hear this constantly as basically an appeal to authority to counter my arguments. And it's hard to disprove. But on the other hand, they've been saying that since at least 2018. Right. And you know, nothing. <laughs> on the other hand, you could also argue, considering it's AI, that these you know ChatGPT is is an evidence of this. I don't know. I'm just skeptical that the people who are big into AI. Aren't just selling vaporware. But I could be totally wrong. Like, we could wake up, you know, with the Antichrist in the form of our new AI overlord tomorrow, and I'll be like, oh, no, (laughs) I was wrong. In the future, there was Yogi Berra, supposedly, said predictions are hard, especially about the future. You know, if I was a betting man, I'd think like nuclear warfare of some kind and regression is more likely than our AI overlords. I mean, nuclear war seems to be something that people are being overly cavalier about, mm-hmm. like, uh, growing up in the East, I wouldn't have thought we'd be back here to, to the possibilities of nuclear war, but we'll see, right? I mean,
1: what are you are going to do? Yeah, you know, one. this is a, a good segue to another question I had, which is that a general problem, and I think this was very apparent during COVID, is the amount of information that people are supposed to grapple with nowadays, where it is very overwhelming mm-hmm. when you're trying to make these decisions, and especially about politics, which has pervaded every aspect of our lives now, and we're all supposed to have an informed opinion about it, and I was curious, beside devoting yourself to large amounts of study on all of these topics, what your general approach is to that problem of having informed opinions about things and making the right decisions?
0: I mean, it's a good question. I think generally speaking, the, the premise that informs a lot of people that you need to have an informed opinion is false. I think most people shouldn't have informed opinions about anything outside of their immediate community, and there's no need for them to do it unless, for example, they have a particular you know, interest in a area of history or politics or have informed opinions are grossly overrated. And even for myself, you know, I'm off Twitter. I'm spending a lot more time outside gardening and so on. And part of that is not because I dislike informed opinions, but because I find that stuff to be more rewarding and I regard a lot of what's happening, what we inform ourselves about to be shadow play. Mm-hmm. Shadow play in two ways. That is, most of it is lies. Like, it's almost impossible to get any information about the Russia-Ukraine war that's just not flat-out lies. Yes. So why bother? Right. You're informing yourself with a bunch of stuff that is probably lies. So what's the it's also shadow play because none of it matters. You know, what's the, I think it's a, it's a Smith's album, Nothing Matters, and what if it did? No, it's John Cougar. But I mean, nothing matters. Like, who cares what Joe Biden says today yeah. or, or you know, Donald Trump? I mean, this, this doesn't matter. It has no meaning to like what the future is going to look like in the next five years. So why spend your, your time on it? So I think that people need to spend, I don't think I'm really answering the question, but I think people need to spend you know, less time on being informed. And that's true for people who are kind of, elites, highly educated, and for people who are less educated. I think one of the beauties of modern technology is that particularly people who historically haven't been able to inform themselves. Say you're driving a forklift around all day. You can listen to podcasts and things like that. But a lot of people do that not to inform themselves about current events, but to expand their knowledge about things which are not really informing yourself in the sense that most people use it, which means about current events. You know, they're learning about history or they're reading Daryl Cooper's thing about the coal Virginia coal miners or they're improving their knowledge base without participating in the shadow play and the lies. And I think that's very good for society, building a base of people who can help rebuild society after the shadow play comes to an end. I think that was a politician's answer. Where I didn't really answer the question, <laughs> but certainly. So- you need to reframe it i'm
1: happy to do i think i understand the essence of it and i agree which is you know i joke about this with some of my friends that the only reason to follow current events and this is across all political you know spectrums in the media is just to learn what lies you're supposed to believe on that day there's very little point to it and then just think the opposite now granted that's not always true of course but that is often true especially over the last few well,
0: years well the easiest way it used to be before musk took over twitter was to go to twitter and look at the trending. Yes. You know, whatever the, however they phrase something like experts say x you knew that was the npc meme that everyone was supposed to absorb that day and so you <laughs> need to leave the
1: office yeah that one thing oh go ahead yeah I would, I would say two other things that i've thought about on that point and i don't know if these are great answers or not but this is something that's helped me is number one just studying history because i you know history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. You know, there is some a lot of truth to that in interpreting current events. You've done a great job of that you know, in your analysis on Finland and Francisco Franco, which is funny because I have several Spanish friends and I love to bring up Franco.
0: To that. Well, as far as I can tell, even somewhat conservative Spaniards who are young have been completely propagandized yeah. about Franco.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Their reaction was not openly hostile, but you could say tepid. So it might also yeah. just be, they tend to be smarter, more reasonable guys, I would say than average. So they're, you know, they're a little more receptive, but the other, so studying history would be one thing that helps me interpret these things. And then another one is, and I'm very curious about your thoughts on this is like, let's say you take something like childhood education, which is something I want to ask you about before we wrap up. And it is a very difficult thing, right? You have to almost understand like pedagogy as as a field to try and make these decisions for your kids. And for me, if I'm trying to interpret these things, something that's helpful is I might not know the answers, but I at least educate myself enough to know what questions to ask when I'm talking with somebody. Mm-hmm. And if they can't give me, if the answers they give me seem like weak tea and this don't make any sense, then that at least helps me understand what not to do. Well,
0: it's, I think, I, think it's, I mean, and it, the childhood education, I think that that's a big part of it. And, and that's the opposite of the way most children are taught in schools today. And whether that's private or public schools, I mean, our kids used to go to a, a very well-regarded local private school, which went woke overnight, so we yanked them out. I mean, it was bizarre, and one of the chief signs of that is not ask, not getting educating children to ask the right questions. I mean, and the worst part is that they they pretend they do, like they make this huge deal out of critical thinking, but but when they say critical thinking, what they mean is accepting left piety as gospel, and you know, and searching for racism everywhere. Uh you know, and it. I mean, it, it, critical. When it's very Orwellian to use an we use term critical thinking in the educational lexicon means
1: the exact opposite. What is your your general approach to this? Because I'm assuming it is not public school.
0: Right. So we used to be we were originally public school years ago, and then we took the kids off that, and and then in a local private school. Now they go to a classical Christian school. You know, a basically there's a network of these schools, loosely affiliated. Some of them that that some with a more religious bent than others, but all of them have some religious bent, where basically they get a classical education, meaning literally Latin and Greek, standard history, old-fashioned books. Again, it, it, the the younger kids who have never had anything but that live in this essentially 1950s childhood. It's like the other day, so I have an 11-year-old, a 12-year-old, 11-year-old, and he's like, points to a rainbow flag, and he's like, what's that? And I'm like, "And like, and that's a leftist flag, because they know leftists are bad, and you know, <laughs> Politically aware in, in an eleven, probably excessively politically aware in an in 11, 11 year eleven-year-old way. But they know that you know Francisco Franco is great. But so, but to them, like the rainbow flag is and They've talked among themselves. It's just it's a generic symbol of hated leftism. Mm-hmm. They, have, you know, they they have no idea of its connotations of sexual immorality and you know various forms of perversion. That just they're just not exposed to that. Period. I mean, there will at some point because unfortunately you can't escape it. But for at least a couple of years, they're just going to associate it with leftism bad and not inquire any further into. It. So that's a product school where no one's going to contradict them. Even there, it's it's overly feminized. I mean, all education now for little boys is you know be a good little girl, sit in rows, don't make noise. But you know it's a, a, as good as it can be in there. And they compensate. These are the little boys. There's two of them, and they're they're very aggressive. We also have a little girl, and she's you know, very little girlish. So the schools are perfect. So my recommendation, and this is not a new recommendation to people for education for children, is these classical Christian schools is the way to – I mean, there's probably classical analogs if you – like we had a Jewish friends who looked into it, but they're like, you know, man, I just can't do this because, you know, it's <laughs> like so – okay, fine. But there may or may not be analogs in some places that are either secular but still classical. I think there are some attempts to do that or – you. Know, in line with your faith tradition, to, to sound kind of smarmy.
1: Right. Well, before we wrap up, I know you have to go, but I wanted to hit you with a few rapid-fire questions that I thought would be fun. So, number one, if you were arrested with no explanation, what would your family and friends assume you had done?
0: Tried to overthrow the government.
1: <laughs> Good one. If there were one person from history who you could bring back from the dead, who would it be? Napoleon. Interesting. Why him and not, say, Franco or Augustus or one of these other guys?
0: Well, Augustus is is too alien to our world. I did that I did give him some thought, and Franco is a man of a specific time and place. Mm. And he, he, Franco would have had Franco himself would have had no interest in saying something about how the broader world should be run. He's a Spaniard. His Span- Spain was his thing. If you asked Franco to run Germany, he'd be like, "What the hell are you talking about? I'm not running Germany. <laughs> you know that's Hitler's job." <laughs> and we're- on now, yeah, <laughs> lasted Hitler obviously, but so yeah i I think, I think Napoleon would be the most interesting, and so, in terms of like world historical figures uh he he's the most interesting he was extremely highly educated an auto autodidact, and for example he he had opinions on i was, in one of my recent reviews, I was talking about Napoleon's opinion. The author talked about it, I didn't dig it out, but Napoleon's opinion written on Saint Helena about the civil war between Julius Caesar and Pompey. And who should have won, and kind of thing. So he knew a lot of stuff about a lot of stuff, mm. and so Napoleon was an interesting guy.
1: Good point. And then last one is favorite firearm in general and for recreational shooting.
0: So for carry, I carry a Glock forty three X. Bit more, a bit more in the magazine. It's about size right for my hands, which you know are not not huge. Like for some people, it's it's too small a gun. Recreational shooting, typically an AR platform. I don't like heavy recoil guns. I've kind of weak retinas, so I don't like I don't like heavy guns. I own a Barrett, but I've never shot it. I'm afraid of it. And I'm thinking of, I have actually have an application in for a for a silencer to amuse myself with some, some plinking kind of stuff. I don't shoot as much as I should, but I'm, I'm, I'm good. But all common platforms, I can operate with some degree of skill. I think, to me, guns are like tools. Purpose for every tool, a tool for every purpose. I don't want to collect, like, Japanese World War II rifles. I want Glocks, ARs things that they're hammers and saws and things like that for
1: every person. Right. I think once you get a silencer, you will want to get one for every gun. That's been my experience. I don't like shooting without a suppressor.
0: What's your, what's your favorite platform?
1: Probably a 300 blackout AR platform. So slightly, it's a, just a five, five, six that's been necked up to a 30 yeah, can, sure. 30 caliber.
0: I actually just bought a or just ordered a, they're hard to get. So I had to get an FFL transfer, 300 blackout bolt gun, a Ruger American rifle, because we have a bunch of coyotes uh, and I, 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 I mean, that as silent as it gets to not, not annoy the neighbors. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Q silencers, I'm a big fan of as well. I don't know if you've come across them.
0: I have. I, I my I actually have an NFA trust being set up and hasn't been approved. So obviously I can't be, you know, buying any silencers. And as I say, I'm a, I'm a stickler for the legalities up until the legalities disappear. And so I'll, I'll do my silencer buying when I get my trust approved. Makes
1: sense. <laughs> Makes sense. Well, Charles, thank you very much. I really enjoyed talking to you. I don't want to take your time too much more. But, oh, my pleasure. Yeah. Where can I where can I get your book? I'll send you one. You can find it on Amazon if you want. It's... I'll buy it on Amazon because I, I think everyone should support. I mean, you'll get like 50 cents
0: or something, I'm sure. <laughs> but it's, it's, you can send me a link. I would appreciate sure.
1: it. Sure. Yeah, I will. Thank you. Ba- Amazon actually banned me from advertising it, so I appreciate it. Oh, really? Yeah. Boom. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I feel like that's a sign. I'm, that's a green flag. I'm on the right track, I think.
0: Which, for the, book, the
1: Second Amendment Manifesto. It's under a pen name, too.
0: I have that. Really? We correspond. Bought it at the time. Yeah, I have it over here. Yeah, so I just got confused. Earlier. Oh, okay. So, I have, so that, that's my own fault for, get, for getting confused for, for who my correspondent was. I, I But it, it, it's over there in my books to be cataloged. No problem. Yeah. So
1: I'm, I'm curious what you think.
0: Yes, it'd be excellent. Awesome. Well, I really enjoyed this. I mean, the, 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 these were some, I think, stimulating discussions. With, 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 with I mean, I, I do podcasts a month. I've cut them back for Lent. And I found this to be a, be a cut above, shall oh, we say? Oh, thank you. So, yeah, I mean, I,
1: I prepared, but it was not too difficult just because I have been mainlining a lot of your content. So I just kept writing down questions. Have a good day. See ya.
0: Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.
1: I hope you enjoyed this interview. You can find links to everything mentioned in this episode in the description. If you'd like to read or listen to Charles's ideas, check out his website, theworthyhouse.com and his podcast of the same name. If you'd like to support this show, consider buying a copy of my book, The Second Amendment Manifesto, What Every American Should Know About Their Constitutional Right to Own Guns, which I published under a pen name, John Payne. If you're curious where the Second Amendment comes from and what it means for both the present and future of America, you'll like it. You can find it by searching for The Second Amendment Manifesto on Amazon or by going to second amendment manifesto.com, which will redirect you to the Amazon listing. Thank you for listening.